everyone. Welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, business executives, and public intellectuals about some of the most important issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Uh, today here with me is Rob Henderson. He is a PhD candidate in social psychology at Cambridge University. He is a Gates Cambridge scholar. So you may know, you may have heard the Rose Scholarship. So the Gates Cambridge Scholarship is kind of the equivalent uh, in Cambridge, a very prestigious uh, honor and, and a very bright guy who uh, writes a lot of uh, newsletters and writes a lot of articles about human nature and social psychology on his Twitter. Uh, we, we look forward to having this a fascinating conversation with him. So thanks so much uh, for joining me today, Rob. Yeah, hey, Tiger, thanks for, thanks for having me. Uh, and co-hosting this show uh, with me is uh, my longtime friend, Jansen Chu. Uh, he is a rising sophomore uh, at Yale University, currently taking a gap year, uh, joining us from Hong Kong. Thanks so much for joining me, Jansen. Yeah, thanks for having me too, Tiger. Uh, Rob, why don't we uh, jump right in? You have a fascinating background, to, to say the least. Uh, uh, I, I won't even go into it. Maybe I will just let you start. I usually give our, our, our guest a, a quick intro, but I think you will do uh, the justice much better. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so sort of a long story, but to, to give you the short version. So like you said, right now, I'm, uh, I'm currently in my third year, uh, PhD candidate at Cambridge. Uh, before this, I was uh, at Yale uh, for my undergrad and you graduated in 2018. Um, but before that, I had a very different kind of life. Uh, so to just back way, way up, uh, sort of at the beginning, and um, I was born in Los Angeles. My, my mother, she was an immigrant from South Korea. Uh, she you know, got into drugs. She just was unable to take care of me. So when I was three, I entered foster homes in LA and just sort of moved around. Um, I used to think that I lived in uh, four different foster homes, but recently I looked at some old documents uh, that my adoptive mother gave me uh, from some social workers, and it turned out I lived in seven. So I moved so often that I don't even remember, like just you know how many families I'd been with. Um, later on, I was adopted um, by this sort of working class family in a small town called Red Bluff in Northern California, which I mean it really doesn't look like when people think of California, it looks nothing like. It looks nothing like LA or San Francisco or any of the big like sort of hub cities. It's uh, it was a very small town of about you know 13, 14,000 people, um, sort of blue collar. The the median income when I had arrived there, median household income was about twenty seven thousand dollars a year. You know the big sort of um, you know the, the the main places where people worked, uh, places like Walmart, the local mill, you know lumber yard. Um, people who went to college you know worked at the high school or you know taught or worked for the county. So it was, um, yeah, just sort of a more blue collar environment compared to the more sort of like, I don't know, uh, urban environment I come from in LA. Um, I'd also experienced just a, a bunch of sort of drama and chaos in my, in my childhood in this, in this small town. My adoptive parents divorced shortly after, um, after I'd moved in with them. Uh, my adoptive father subsequently sort of cut off ties with the rest of the family because he was so angry about the divorce, stopped talking to me. Um, then my mother, a um, little bit later, fell in love with a woman who helped to raise me and, and my adoptive sister sort of into adolescence. But then she was shot when I was uh, 14, when I was about to enter high school. 
So even though like, you know, I, I was always sort of a curious kid and enjoyed reading and, um, you know, I, I maybe had some, some underlying potential, but just all of like, basically my environment was like, very, like working hard to stop that from presenting itself, I guess is one way of thinking about it. Uh, just a lot of drama and chaos and turbulence. And so, you know, right before high school, that, that family tragedy had occurred. And so basically, I, uh, for that and many other reasons, I just wasn't able to focus, um, got really bad grades, graduated from high school with a 2.2 GPA in like the bottom third of my class, um, joined the military when I was 17. And yeah, just sort of uh, traveled around, learned a lot, matured. Um, and, you know, there, there might be other reasons, too. But basically, like, from there, I was able to sort of stabilize a little bit and uh, apply to Yale um, and somehow managed to get in. And from there, my life has been sort of much more, I don't know, uh, comfortable slash boring, <laughs> something like that. Uh, but that's sort of the short version. I'm happy to jump into any of those and explore further. Um, but yeah. Uh, perhaps maybe we can dive into your experience at Yale. Uh, very interesting because, as you mentioned, you grew up in foster homes, served in the military, ultimately ended up at Yale. Uh, this um, experience kind of reminded me of uh, J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, and he, he has been a pretty big. He released the book a couple of years ago, and now Netflix just released this movie, and there's a bunch of uh, media discourse very recently about how good that movie is and such and so on. But he went to Yale Law School after going to ha having a very difficult background. And then he uh, joined the military, which disciplined him. And eventually um, he did really well in life. And, and he called it um, Yale, uh, the Hollywood for nerds. Um, and you described in an article in New York Post uh, that Yale has been described as a Disneyland for brain brainiacs. Uh, brainiacs. Yeah. And, and you both come from very humble beginnings, but were transformed by the military service. So I, I would love to, here, I guess in, in one way, part of the question is your similarity or differences with JD's past in, in that sense, but, but also uh, how did Yale shape many of your thoughts when it comes to um, your current research and a lot of your opinions on social issues at large? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so of course, you know, I, I read JD's book, um, watched, watched the movie uh, fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I mean, you know, there are some similarities between our, our backgrounds and maybe some overlap between our, our views. Um, you know, one thing that his book stresses that, that, I, that I, to some degree, stress as well is the importance of personal responsibility, the importance of, you know, trying to do the right thing for your kids. Um, you know, the, the sort of uh, basic, yeah, family and responsibility, those are, those are things that I think are really important. Um, and I think, yeah, to some degree, maybe we had the same experience in terms of like both of us being maybe, you know, kind of kind of curious kids, but the, our family environments were just so um, unstable that it was hard to concentrate and hard to sort of get on that, that track towards, you know, the traditional path to college right out of high school. Um, but yeah, for, for me, I had basically like no contact or familiarity with the kinds of people who go to places like Yale, who graduate from places like, and, and where they end up next in terms of, you know, the common career paths in whatever finance consulting, media, NGOs, like basically anywhere, right? And so um, I was fortunate because 
I mean, yeah, because so toward the end of my my enlistment in the military, I found this program called the Warrior Scholar Project, which I've written about in a couple of different pieces. One in that New York Post piece you mentioned, and I just wrote a piece that came out like a couple months ago uh, in the New York Times uh, about sort of TV and pop culture and the relationship between you know those things and, and social class. Um, the Warrior Scholar Project is basically an academic program to help veterans get into college. It was actually started by a couple of students at Yale, I think in 2011 or something. But anyway, they basically, if you're a veteran or someone in the military and you want to go to college, you apply for this, and it's like a two-week boot camp where they teach you about college. They teach you like, you know, how to apply for college, how to be a good student, how to write an essay, all those kinds of things, like sort of a crash course in for, for, for people who've sort of been out of school for a few years like I was. Um, while I was there, all of those things were important, sort of the academic stuff, learning how to do all of that. I had been such a, such a poor student that this was like a, a really good experience for me from that perspective. But from another perspective, there was a sort of social class angle that I had, you know, I started to, to understand it. I started to sort of glean this, the importance of non-academic factors in integrating into a place like Yale. So, you know, I, I would talk to some of the tutors at this program, and many of them were Yale students or students from Dartmouth or like basically other sort of undergrad students at, you know, various selective universities and institutions. And I would just sort of see what they did. You know, I'd like talk to them and hang out and sort of and they'd say like, you know, oh, you know, they watch shows like The West Wing. I, I learned how important this show was to a lot of uh, young college students. Um, they were constantly like reading the news, reading the New York Times, reading The Atlantic. Um, you know, some of the some of the writing instructors at this program would assign us articles from The New Yorker. And so I started to sort of catch on that like, oh, these are the sorts of things that educated people care about. These are the things that they consume. Uh, in terms of news, in terms of media, TV, and so on. Um, and so I just started to give myself this sort of like, you know, I, I took what I learned there. And over the next few months, while I was in the military, while I was applying to college, I started to read more, uh, sort of consuming all of these different publications, you know, subscribing, whatever. And I still didn't quite get like the importance of them, really. I just thought that like, oh, they read it, I should read it too. But um, yeah, it wasn't really until I got to Yale that I truly understood that, like, you know, this this is what they do. This is important to them. If you want to like share ideas, these are the places that you have to go. Um, it's just so different, man. Like, uh, I I can't remember a single time, for example, that like anyone that I grew up with, you know, parents or friends or whatever, subscribing to you know the Washington Post or something like that. It's just um, the way people get news, and and of course some of this may be because of time. Uh, 15 years ago, it might have been different, but I don't think it was that different. Um, something else uh, that that I, I noticed was, um, and, and this sort of gets to my idea of, of luxury beliefs, which we can get into later, was um, just like how, how different people thought um, about, you know, things like responsibility, to bring it back to, to the earlier point. I've noticed that, you know, high achieving students often sort of downplay the importance of hard work or downplay um, the importance of personal agency. Uh, even though they themselves tend to work very hard, uh, you know, some of these, you know, they'll, they'll take an Adderall and work all night. And then the next day they'll say like, oh, but it's systemic or it's, you know, it's, it's social forces that are at work here. And that's the reason why people can't get ahead. Um, 
meanwhile, I'll talk to my friends from the military or friends that I grew up with. And even though their lives are not maybe as whatever comfortable or, or ensconced in affluence, they actually do believe in things like responsibility and agency and, you know, sort of believing that you can work hard and, and, and get ahead. So I find this contrast very interesting that on the one hand, these people, maybe their lives aren't as great, but they still believe in hard work. And then these other people whose lives are pretty good. But then when you ask them about hard work, they say like, well, it's actually just systemic or people have, you know, it's, it's out of our control. Um, that contrast to me was was really interesting. Yeah, Rob, um, in the same New York article, like Tiger mentioned earlier, you talked about you're really into social psychology and I guess, can you share more about your research you're doing at Cambridge and talk more about luxury beliefs? Uh, yeah, yeah. So my, my research at Cambridge, um, it's, it's sort of loosely connected to, to the sort of public writing that I do. I'm, I'm mostly interested in moral psychology. Um, you know, the kind of work that maybe you guys have read about from like Jonathan Haidt or something about moral foundations, uh, different and moral intuitions between liberals and conservatives or between different, you know, you know, people based on their education. Um, and so that's sort of my, my research area, Cambridge moral psychology. Um, my luxury beliefs idea is, is related to that. Um, the way that I came up with that, that, that was sort of a way for me to like untangle all of the observations that I had had and all of the research that I had done on class, on status, on, you know, uh, political beliefs. And so basically, um, I guess the first, like, like right away, I noticed that like the, the beliefs, the sort of moral and political beliefs uh, at Yale were, were different than, than where I had come from before, um, you know, Red Block and, and the military was just, it was just different. And I wondered like, what, what could be responsible for this? Um, then I started to read more about how class was expressed you know, historically. So it used to be expressed through material goods. Um, you know, this is sort of easy to understand that like in the past, people would sort of like wear a tuxedo and, or go golfing or, um, you know, display sort of jewelry or wear a powdered wig. They would do all of these things to sort of distinguish themselves from the masses, from the commoners. The aristocrats would sort of show like, we are, we are sort of above the rest of you and here's how you know. Um, Today we have more of, I think, uh, an egalitarian streak. We don't like to uh, ex ex display goods in that way. We think it's kind of vulgar to like, I mean, there are some subcultures where I guess this is more acceptable, but generally speaking, especially places like Yale, um, it's sort of, I think, crass to like, I don't know, wear a bunch of like fancy clothes and, and like publicly display these kinds of things. Um, the other thing is that material goods have become more affordable. so. You know, even even like my poorest friends from high school and Red Bull, you know, they still have iPhones, maybe they have an older model or whatever, but like they still have the same kinds of material goods. Um, it's harder to just sort of walk through a city and pick out who's middle class and who's rich um, because we all kind of dress the same now. Uh, so people still care about status, though. Status doesn't go away. How do, do you know, people who go to elite institutions who care about status uh, display these things? Um, how do we know that they care about status? Uh, well, there's some research showing that if you sort of group people, categorize people by education, by income, by sort of uh, you know, subjective 
social class or sort of how would they would categorize themselves in terms of their own class. So they're the objective markers of income and education, then also they themselves, like where would they put themselves on the class ladder? Those things correlate with how much people care about status, how much they care about their reputation. Um, so you just basically ask them, you know, how much do you care about how you're viewed in, in, in terms of how, you know, how much do you care about how others view you? Um, the higher your social class, the more you care about status. So I found this interesting too, as I was reading this, I thought to myself like, okay, so these are the people that care the most about status. How are they attempting to manifest this? How do they display this? And then that's where I arrived at the, the luxury beliefs. Um, there's a, an, analog, an analogy to fashion here where like fashion is constantly changing because the most fashionable people always wanna be sort of on the leading edge of, of the industry. Um, as soon as a, a particular look is adopted by the rest of society, they have to update and quickly change their wardrobe to show that like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm one of the fashionable people. Um, I think something similar is going on uh, among the, the affluent, the highly educated, well-to-do in the US, maybe other countries too, um, where, yeah, as soon as a particular belief, uh, a sort of moral fashion uh, becomes widespread throughout society, they, they quickly become concerned and think like, oh, wow, everyone has this belief. I better update it. I better change it. Um, and I'm happy to go into particular, particular examples of this. Um, but basically, my, my claim is that once a view becomes conventional and widespread, uh, the educated class uh, feels this pressure to distinguish themselves and update their moral fashions through luxury beliefs. Uh, Rob, I guess one follow-up question would be who creates these luxury beliefs? Uh, do they spontaneously come from the rich? Do they come from the intellectuals? Do they come from college kids like us? The chances are I, and me by, by us who have too much time on our free hands. So, so uh, who's dominating the social discourse these days, I guess? Uh, well, I mean, so, so basically all of the above to some degree, what you're saying, uh, people who have, who wield disproportionate cultural influence, social influence. Um, so like I said, before, I, I mentioned all of those media outlets, you know, some of those places that, you know, years later now I've written for them, but you know, five, six years ago, I, you know, I started to, to sort of, um, consume the, this content. Uh, those are the places, right. Where sort of the leading edge, uh, cultural elites, people who attend places like Princeton and Yale or Harvard or whatever, um, they are the people who sort of broadcast and, and sort of uh, determine what conversation topics get talked about. And I, I don't necessarily think it's like a, I, I, I wanna be clear, I don't think it's like a calculated thing. I don't think that like people are sitting around thinking like, oh, well, the masses believe this. So now let's, let's just believe this. I think it's sort of this, this sort of implicit, maybe to some degree unconscious Thing that's going on where you know someone might you know pen an op-ed somewhere and it's a unique you know in the moment it might be a unique or strange or shocking idea but it sort of catches on it, it feels trendy like it sort of like goes viral or whatever people start sharing it with each other other people start writing op-eds in response and then the idea just sort of bubbles up to the surface and then it becomes uh, it becomes convention. Now you have to believe it, or otherwise you'll be shunned. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's uh, it's basically the the sort of all the above the, the people who are in that sort of highly educated group, people who attend prestigious universities, who have access to media organs, 
and it's not just the i mean i guess the the origin of it would be sort of content creators writers producers whatever um but it becomes sort of repeated and amplified and the message spreads through you know sort of what what movies you watch the tv shows uh you know podcasts you know i'm sure people have listened to this podcast and, and learned some interesting ideas and, and shared them with others right and so it just sort of like it, it starts from a few individuals and then over time it uh it sort of um rises to the surface uh in the sort of conscious consciousness of of the elite class so so rob uh, i'm about to say a lot of words uh, so please cut me off at uh, some point if you think i'm not making sense but what it reminds me of is the recent rise of what some people call the intellectual dark web uh led okay. by joe rogan eric weinstein uh, who famously made, made uh, devised this term called the institutional narrative the gated institutional narrative and in, in yesterday i interviewed Robert Barnes, who is the lawyer of Alex Jones. Uh, we had a two and a half hour conversation and I, he went, also went to Yale from a humble background from the South and he didn't like Yale and actually dropped out in protest for all kinds of reasons. Really interesting. But he explained what institutional narrative is going on and why there's idea suppression. And, and he says it's not Soros and Bill Clinton and Bill Gates get behind a room and they decide we need to suppress certain ideas and then make certain ideas better. It's that somehow the dominant forces in media and business today and culture uh, are, are run by people and, and are, who, who have all received relatively the same educational background and they all have relatively the same beliefs. And by run by the people, he doesn't mean a group of white men getting behind the room, behind the closed doors. It's literally just if you are an editor at New York Times, if you're a journalist uh, at The Atlantic, if you happen to be a uh, a software engineer in Silicon Valley at Facebook, but, but because you guys all commonly look at the same issues through the same lens and uh, you, you arrive at the same conclusion. So you ban Alex Jones at the same time in his case, and he's really against that. And, and you all, you all uh, push for certain narratives at the same time. So is that something that you are kind of talking about, which is that it's not something conscious, but it just happens because of the way culture has been going? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, maybe what he's getting at is is this sort of. Um, I mean, it's spontaneous. It's not top down. It's bottom up. Um, I, I mean, maybe a, another way to think about this uh, to I guess like to to shift it to something more maybe neutral or or less morally charged would be something like um, career tracks, right? So when when you first get to, I mean, I, I witnessed this, I mean, maybe you've seen something similar at Princeton, where like when people first get to an elite university, they're like, oh, I want to go to med school. I want to change the world. I want to, you know, do all these, uh, start a company or something. And then once you get there, it's like, you know, what is it like 30 or 40% of the graduating class each year goes to consulting, finance and tech or something like that. Right? And so when you first get there, you have, you have your own path in mind of what you want to do. And, and then you're just sort of marinated in this culture of like, you know, everything is in, like there. There is like subtle pressure everywhere you turn to go onto one of these three tracks. Everywhere you go, like all the recruiting events, the career things, whatever, like all the dinners, like everyone around you, everyone starts thinking like, well, you know, everyone else is doing. Maybe I should. And, and everyone sort of starts drifting towards those three. And then that's why, you know, at the beginning, it's like I don't know, ten percent of students say they want to work, and then at the end, it's forty percent end up actually going there. And so. I think something similar is going on with, with you know, maybe more moral beliefs, with political beliefs, where 
you know, maybe the students sort of arrive and have more of an open mind, but there's all this subtle pressure around and you start to learn which opinions receive, uh, you know, receive the finger snaps, receive the validation, the accolades, the, the Instagram likes, and which opinions are sort of like, you know, you, you get sort of uh, more of a condemnatory response, more disapproval, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we we're human beings, we like to, you know, get get validation and esteem and respect from the people around us. And over time, you know, we just sort of respond to the rewards and punishments of our environment. And then we slowly start to get onto this track of like, oh, well, I guess these are the things I'm supposed to believe. I think there's a little bit of um, what uh, the, the economist Timur Karan, the, he's an economist at Duke, he calls it preference falsification, which, yeah, maybe you've, you guys have encountered before. But I mean, the basic idea is that people will publicly express opinions and beliefs that they don't necessarily agree with 100%. But um, because there are, there's either sort of, you know, state sanctioned punishment for it, or, or just like local social punishment in your environment for expressing them, people will just say things that they don't necessarily believe. Um, whereas privately, maybe they'll have more, more concerns, more reservations about it. Um, I mean, there's a related idea from uh, the management expert uh, Jerry B. Harvey. He's talked about the Abilene paradox. Um, and the Abilene paradox, I guess it's sort of similar to group, uh, what was it, uh, preference, preference falsification, but the idea is basically that, like, imagine that there are three people and they're all trying to decide where to go for dinner. And one of them says, um, you know, let's go to this restaurant in Abilene, which is, um, you know, in a distant town, long drive away. So one person suggests, and, and they don't even really want to, but they're just throwing out a suggestion. A second person doesn't really want to argue. They don't really want to go there, but they don't want to argue. So they say like, yeah, that sounds fine. Let's go to Abilene. Now the third person is watching this and they're thinking like, well, these two people want to go to Abilene and I don't want to like be the odd person out. I don't want to be the, you know, the dissenter here. I guess if they, these two guys want to go, then I'll go too. And now you have three people who are going to a place that none of them actually want to go. Um, and I think there's something going on as well with, um, you know, maybe some of the cancel culture stuff, some of the luxury beliefs ideas that I've uh, expressed. Um, I noticed, for example, you know, we we're talking earlier about, about what happened at Yale with the student protests with the Christakis's and how they were trying to get Erica Christakis fired for her email. Um, I noticed publicly, you know, people were very sort of uh, vocal about how upset they were at her and how she should step down from her position as the, you know, then the associate master of the residential college, how she should be fired from her faculty position and so on and so forth. But I would notice privately, many, many more people would say things like, you know, it really isn't right how the way people are treating her. It's not fair. Like, I feel bad for her. But people were scared to say it publicly because they didn't want to draw negative attention to themselves. Uh, something similar happened with me. Um, recent. So this was last year, actually. Uh, so Jordan Peterson, who's sort of a controversial figure, I guess, um, psychologist, he was supposed to visit Cambridge uh, to be um, feel like a research fellow or something, like visiting faculty, whatever. And, you know, a bunch of student activists, and I think faculty too, a bunch of people just protested and got him disinvited. Um, and it seemed like that was the dominant opinion, right? Like it seemed like most people didn't want Jordan Peterson on campus. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times defending Jordan Peterson saying whatever, like basically saying like we should, we should protect free speech. OK, 
okay, maybe he's controversial, but he has some interesting ideas. He clearly has interesting ideas because his book sold like five or six million copies. So people are listening to him. Um, and, you know, so, so publicly everyone's all upset at him, but then privately I write this op-ed and then I'm getting all of these emails at me, all these messages, Twitter DMs, every, like, oh, that was such a great op-ed. People here at Cambridge, professors too, students and professors at Cambridge saying like, oh, that was such a great op-ed. I really think that Jordan Peterson is an interesting guy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but none of them wanted to say anything publicly. Um, so you have this situation where this 10% of the population is publicly very vocal and, in, and instilling fear in the rest of us. And the other 90%, I, I would say really, it's sort of like maybe, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, basically like another 30 or 40% who, who don't like it, but they're quiet. And then the rest are kind of in the middle. But the vast majority of people are not, you know, trying to silence others. They're just scared. Um, and so I've seen this, I saw it at Yale, now I've seen it here at Cambridge. And I think, um, again, I think this goes back to, you know, highly educated, affluent people care a lot about what their peers think about them. They care more than other people relative to less educated, less affluent people. People like us say, we care more about what our friends think of us than the average person. And so we are very concerned with saying the wrong thing. Yeah, I guess can go back to the previous point about uh, finance. I, I read a very interesting book recently by Rene Girard. It's about, um, he talks about mimetic theories, basically that desires are mimetic. So like, for example, like me, you, Tiger, like Tiger likes finance and like we hang around each other and slowly his interests start to become mine. So I guess I kind of see that a lot in finance, you know, like people don't really start, they don't really like, don't even know what an investment bank is when they get into Yale, but then they hang out, hang around with the crowd along, and then they slowly change their desires. But um, can we go back to the Chris Dawkins inst instance? Because I don't think Tiger or most people outside of Yale, I don't think a lot of people know what's going on here. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, just the 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 very you know short version of it is um, the Yale admission. So this was the fall of 2015. This was like literally eight weeks or something into my first semester. Um, I had just got out of the military and then like four days later, I start my first day at Yale. And then eight weeks after that, um, the Yale administration releases an email saying like, basically be careful with what you wear. Don't, you know, wear culturally appropriative costumes or something. Um, you know, basically saying like, you know, just, just whatever, don't wear this or you should wear that or something. And then Erica Christakis, who was the associate master and, I think she's like a lecturer. She's on the faculty um, at Yale. Wrote an email to students, basically calling that administrative email into question, saying like, "Do we really need the administration sort of policing our lives and telling us what to wear and so on?" And basically defending freedom of expression and saying like, "If you have a a problem with someone's costume, maybe the best way to handle it, since we're all adults, is to just talk to each other." Uh, and that email ignited. Uh, um, this very uh, sort of vocal response, vicious reaction. There were protests all around campus. I saw something like a thousand students marching around campus. Um, and it was interesting because if you ask students, you know, is all of this because of that email? They would say it wasn't the email, but her email was emblematic of systemic uh, racism or systemic bigotry or what have you on campus. And then that was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back because 
you know, this, the university is inherently racist and that was just more evidence of it. Um, you know, I, I, maybe that was true, but then I, you know, or, or that, this is what I was thinking at the time today. I don't think it's true, but back then I was like, okay, maybe that's true. But then why are you guys trying to get her fired? I mean, like if the, if the university itself is, shouldn't we all be fired? Like, shouldn't like all these professors be fired? Shouldn't this university be shut down? Why are you targeting her then? But anyway, um, you know, I, I ended up losing some friends over that. I, I sort of, uh, you know, I, at that time on Facebook, for example, um, I don't know if Instagram was quite as big in 2015, but this was a Facebook thing specifically. Uh, people were posting something in response to that event, basically saying like, I stand against racism or something like that, similar to like the black square thing a few months ago with the Black Lives Matter stuff. Uh, and I didn't post anything, number one, because I was like, I was new to campus. I didn't know, I, I just didn't know enough about campus culture to have a strong opinion about it. I was still trying to learn, try to understand, like it was just so different for me. Uh, so I didn't post anything. And then uh, this uh, the student messaged me saying like, why aren't you posting this, what's going on? And, and I thought this person was kind of a friend or at least, you know, sort of had the potential to become a friend if we spent enough time, but it just, you know, suddenly we, she totally stopped talking to me. Um, I lost a couple of other friends for similar reasons, basically calling that whole episode into question about like, I just, I, I could easily see myself or someone else, like basically like the, the opinions expressed in that email to me were not at all inflammatory. The other thing that really, um, I guess sort of shaped my view of Yale was, you know, I lived off campus. Um, I had an apartment in downtown New Haven uh, and Jansen, you probably know, right? Like downtown New Haven is, you know, it's, it's much different than the Yale bubble, right? Like there's a lot of poverty, a lot of homelessness and, you know, it's disproportionately, you know, African-American. I would walk through the green, you know, the sort of parkway through New Haven on my way back home from class. And, you know, I would, I would hear from students about how, you know, how mean Yale is. And then I would see, you know, just basically like the most sort of, uh, um, you know, depressing poverty that you can you can see in a, in a U.S. city, right? And so I would think to myself, like, okay, so these these people claim to be sort of championing the underprivileged or the people who are, you know, who who need help. And then I see what's going on in New Haven, and you know, I, I would, I mean, like, sometimes I would walk through downtown New Haven with some of these students and they would like get scared, right? Like one of, I mean, one of my, maybe this is mean, but like one of my funniest, uh, like to me, one of the funniest things was like to walk through with an undergrad and then like someone would accost us for money and they would like freeze, they get scared um, because they just weren't used to interacting with, you know, people in, in poverty. Um, but, I, if, but if that same person on campus would be all about the poor and how we should help them and so on. So that sort of, subtle or maybe not so subtle hypocrisy also shaped my view of, of these students and how they're often, not always, but oftentimes concerned with saying the right thing, looking good to their immediate peers in their environment. But when it comes to actually doing something to help the people who really need it, um, they're, they're not even familiar with that world, honestly. I mean, I, I could probably count on one hand the number of people who had any kind of upbringing that I had um, in terms of just like poverty or, you know, family instability or chaos or anything like that. Um, I was really shocked, actually. I didn't know this because I, I didn't read the statistics, right? Like the New York Times had that big thing 
was it a couple of years ago showing that Yale has more people from the top 1% than the bottom 50% or something like that. I didn't know that. Like, I just thought like, yeah, okay, maybe there's a lot of rich kids here, but I didn't know it was like that extreme. So yeah, I was just shocked at just like how few people like me were on campus. Um, and then, yeah, I guess like in just that, that was one, one other thing that, that shaped my, my opinion. Uh, could we dive a little bit more in, into, I guess, uh, campus culture and luxury beliefs? Because, and also we should also talk about cancel culture as well as sort of the, the greater trend, especially in light of what happened this past summer, the Black Lives Matter protests. I think uh, that was kind of a shifting moment in terms of campus social discourse, which um, to, to be very honest, I, I think I, I see both sides of the, of the argument uh, people on the on the liberal um, left side would say this is such a horrible issue uh, and, and such an urgent issue that needs our urgent attention. Uh, we should unconditionally really support those voices. And if you are against these, if I can't even uh, agree with you on these most basic uh, statistics or facts or, or history lessons, uh, then I just cannot talk to you anymore. So I think I, I, I see that in the part of the discourse. So it's like, why, why wouldn't you talk to that guy? Yeah, because we, we're not in the, in the same, same shared reality. That's what people on the, on, on the liberal side would say, because you and I disagree on the most basic facts of climate change or Black Lives Matter. I, I don't want to engage with you because you are not in good faith. And, and I guess that, that goes um, along with some of the other I guess, subtle hypocrisies, Rob, that you're, you're talking about, which is that kids probably care a little bit more about um, their actual appearances and talking about Black Lives Matter, even though uh, they are part of the systemic forces that are creating huge inequality. They come from families that vouch for tax breaks for the rich or whatever. So, <laughs> Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, uh, I, I mean, so so one of the things that I, I mean, I, there's a lot of, I don't know, there was just a lot that happened over the summer, but I I found it fascinating uh, and yeah, to some degree disheartening, just like how the most sort of vocal people uh, were, were, yeah, they were disproportionately affluent well-to-do. I mean, there was that, um, I think it was a, a survey, at least the Atlantic reported, I don't know if they actually did the original study, but the Atlantic reported that something like, you know, if you, if you look at um, left-wing activists, they're disproportionately, I mean, it was something like they're three times more likely to earn more than $100,000 a year, disproportionately likely to hold postgraduate degrees, disproportionately likely to be white. Um, so if you look at the sort of uh, the, the extreme left protest movement or, or activist, wing of the left um yeah they're they're more likely to be basically this sort of upper crust of american society uh so to me that's interesting yeah but rob could could someone say because they're educated because they're quote-unquote woke they're uh aware of those issues and they have the social resources to it they can better lead the movement they can better raise awareness and for those 10 percent to be shaping the discourse for the progress that, that's a progressive sign for our society, should, should, some, some would say. Uh, okay, so that might be true for some of them, but I think that one, one, one rebuttal to that would be uh, if you actually look at the statistics of what people want and in terms of opinions and attitudes in American society, um, you've probably heard of this idea of uh, the great awakening 
um, you know, it was sort of written, and I think it might have been coined by Zach Goldberg, who's a political science PhD student, but it's also, you know, been written about by others, uh, Musa Algarbi at Columbia, the, the tablet journalist Wesley Yang. Basically, the, uh, what they find is that uh, educated, affluent white liberals are far more to the left of Hispanic and Black voters on all kinds of issues. Uh, for example, the Abolish the Police movement. Um, you know, you, you may have seen some of these studies basically showing that like 80% of African Americans want e either the same or more police protection in their neighborhoods. Whereas, you know, if you ask people like, you know, should we get rid of the police, uh, the people who are most likely to say, yes, we should abolish or defund or whatever the police, you know, it's, it's uh, the people who are most likely to answer yes to that are educated affluent white liberals. Um, and so the sort of, you know, maybe, maybe they know something the rest of us don't, but I would, I would argue that, um, you know, people can probably, like, you know, the, the typical working class black voter probably knows better for, you know, better for themselves what, what, what they want than, you know, some, some highly educated white person who's never stepped foot in their neighborhood before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that a lot of, it's possible, a lot of their hearts are in the right places. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of their intentions are, are um, you know, sort of noble in intent maybe, but in terms of what people actually want, uh, it's, it's much different. Uh, it is, um, it's just not, not what, what's, what people seem to uh, agree with, so. I guess it's also like the luxury class doesn't have much skin in the game as much as like poor people and really they never really interacted with that class and really know what it's like and they're like upstairs in this ivory tower making all these propositions all these ideas for for people so it's kind of like yeah yeah like the british government or something making policies for in like afghanistan or something like that it's like, <laughs> that's actually fairly that's, no 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 that's a pretty good analogy um yeah i mean people who who maybe sort of glean ideas or or um you know, opinions from from what they read or from secondhand sources, but for people on the ground, you know, they 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 just have no no familiarity and no contact with it. Um, I mean, this is this is relates to, to my luxury beliefs idea that oftentimes the people who expound these beliefs and who help to shape policy never actually incur any of the costs associated with those beliefs. I mean, look. Look, like obviously the police have done horrible things, but if you get rid of the police, like you know, I, I mean, there was a story. I think this was back in July. Um, the like a bunch of people fled Manhattan and hired private security in the Hamptons, right? That like that's what rich people do. Like if there's no more police, then the only people who will have police are the rich. They may not be the sort of state police, but they will hire private security. Um, I. There, there. Are, I mean, other examples of this, but like that's that's a that's sort of a more, I guess, salient or relevant one at the moment. Um, well, other well, I, I guess. Yeah. So, so I guess we don't have to go into the policy details of or defund the police and such and so on. But there is one uh, a curious follow up I would love to ask you about, which is uh, how you actually get a sense of uh, who's dominating the social discourse and what is the, the the public actually feeling about. So, for example, you cite the statistic of maybe saying this group of people actually are not that left. Uh, but it may be, for me, I've read the exact opposite statistic or fact from some survey 
that says two thirds of America support broad police reform or, or two thirds, uh, three fourths of America support the Black Lives Matter movement. So, so you, you see from these things, uh, especially people from, from my source, especially these days, kids use Instagram stories for literally their news. So you throw, scroll through Instagram and you realize all those screenshots of those statistics that basically tell you a very cohesive picture of how people are reckoning systemic racism and, and such and so on. So even, and people from the right uh, could come up with a solid set of st statistics uh, that, that back up their opinion. I think perhaps one good test of that was the 2020 election and, and see how people actually voted. And we didn't see the blue wave. We didn't see the, the, that dramatic shift uh, of a shift towards the left. The progressives uh, didn't um, you know, dominate the discourse as, uh, to the extent that they imagined. But uh, maybe that's one way to, to test uh, what's actually going on. But, but we saw from the polls, from the surveys, from the statistics, nothing's really that accurate. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you actually you know, get a sense of whether there's 10% or 80% or 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that that's a that's a good example. I mean, election outcomes. I remember, um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of people I know at Cambridge, some of my Yale friends too, who were, you know, a little bit disappointed during the Democrat primaries when when it became like very clear that Joe Biden was about to be the nominee, because I think like you know Biden was viewed as and sort of positioned himself as the sort of center left, um, sort of moderate candidate, and a lot of people I knew, uh, highly educated people, you know, they wanted Bernie Sanders, they wanted Elizabeth Warren, they wanted someone who was who was more to the left. But the sort of median Democrat voter wanted someone more like Joe Biden. Um, as far as like, you know, the I guess, we can all sort of craft narratives with with statistics, I think one, you know, something maybe more unfortunate is that like, you, you can, um, you can tell a story and based on how surveys are worded. So you mentioned before, like, you know, maybe, yeah, two thirds of Americans want broad police reform, but then, you know, people will read that word reform in different ways, depending on their own biases and preconceived notions and political opinions and so on. And, you know, for, for better or worse, the people who are most likely to, to read into those the way they want to are highly educated people. Um, you know, you know, similar to this idea that, you know, the, the highest people who occupy the highest social positions in society are also the ones who care the most about status. Well, they also care the most about um, expressing the right political opinions to their group. And so, uh, for example, the, uh, I think he's a political psychologist at Yale, Dan Kahan, he's found, for example, that the people who are the most concerned about climate change are highly educated Democrats. And the people who are the least concerned about climate change are college-educated Republicans. So what you find is that less educated people, um, regardless of their political orientation, have roughly the same level of concern about climate change, right? But, so they're sort of like similarly, you know, they both sort of fare or whatever. But then, um, you know, as Democrats gain more education, they become very concerned. And as Republicans gain more education, they become less concerned. So the, the gap actually widens the, the more education you obtain or whatever the, the more whatever clever you happen to be or, or you know, so, um, and I think this is something that's going on right now with, uh, you know, the sort of the, the discourse, which is, you know, mostly, uh, the, most of the participants tend to be, um, you know, educated people. I actually watched a re really interesting documentary recently called The Social Dilemma, and talks about social media and how it affects truth. And uh, one thing that really struck me was that like in Google, right, depending on the region, 
you search is climate change something like blah 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 like in like a heavily democratic region it says climate change getting worse climate change like gonna like are the oceans gonna rise or whatever but in like a very republican area the algorithm like the autofill would be like is climate change a hoax so i guess that plays a huge huge impact on how like the polarization in society and uh how yeah you know we don't have a solid truth base to argue on to have the, discourse the, 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 there's no shared reality anymore if you if you don't want shared realities to exist and i i i, I how would that i guess affect human nature luxury beliefs going back to your research rob um yeah and kind of to add on to sorry sorry um i read um, one article you shared on Twitter, actually, it's about the Weimarization of the American public. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's about like how Germany, yeah, yeah. And I was just curious on like, I read like a lot of history and see like, oh, there's a lot of, there's a constant theme of polarization happening like over and over again. I guess like what kind of, what forces society to polarize and what kind of, yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah, these are all, um... Yeah, these are good questions. So, so yeah, I mean, as far as like the polarization question, um, what forces society or what causes, I mean, there are multiple different causes. One interesting cause is, um, you know, basically you're, you're sort of, I mean, people tend to want to be around the people that they get along with the most, right? And so, I mean, this is sort of, I guess this is a somewhat provocative idea. Uh, but this was suggested, I think, uh, in a psychology paper I read earlier this year. Um, basically, what happens is that in a in a society where people can more easily relocate, so you can live wherever you want in the modern world, it's much easier to pick up and move to a different city. Um, over time, people start to congregate, like they physically live in the places that they enjoy living in, and those places tend to be people who are very similar to themselves. Right. And, and this is all the more true for people with means, right? Uh, people with, with money, people who are educated, they're the, of course, the most likely to pack up and leave and, and congregate in neighborhoods with one another. Um, and so as, you know, the free movement of people, they, they start to sort of cluster together and spend more time with each other, amplify their views. Um, group polarization can take hold. Uh, so the idea of group polarization was originally discovered as a social psychology idea from the 1960s. Um, so uh, basically the idea is that when people uh, express like tepid ideas that they're not sure about to each other, then those beliefs magnify. Uh, and so the study, the original study was something like uh, they brought a bunch of people together and they all sort of, uh, this was in France, so they all sort of uh, didn't really like uh, Charles de Gaulle very much. I think this was a study. Uh, and then they let uh, these people speak for a few minutes and then at the end of the conversation um, all of their beliefs had magnified and now they were all sure like yeah this guy was really not a great leader I mean, or maybe it was a good leader but either way um, or for example like if you take the three of us you put us in a room and let's say that all of us um, sort of like vanilla ice cream but we're not sure but we kind of like, and, and so then I say like yeah I kind of like it you say you kind of like it and then after we sort of talk about ice cream for a while at the end of the conversation all of us will be much much more certain that vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream uh, and so this also happens online, it happens in person, um, where we all sort of reflect opinions back at one another, and then those beliefs harden and strengthen, uh, in part because we all want to sort of get along with the group. Uh, none of us want to be the person who is counteracting or dissenting. And of course, each time you express that belief and other people see, 
then they get the message that like that's the opinion you're supposed to express. Um, so there's two things going on here. One is that people sort of congregate both in person and online toward their you know their favorite groups, and then as they continue to share ideas with one another, they become more certain and more confident in them. Um, I want to say though that like you know I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I guess it's. A, I guess I've just been thinking about like how important is it to have a completely accurate um, like mental representation of reality, um, even though in the U.S., of course, like all of us have different political views, and maybe we're reading the statistics in different ways, and so on and so forth. If you take like a very like sort of broad historical view or or even cross cultural view. Um, almost nobody has the same mental representation of reality. I mean, in terms of like different religious views, different views about like how the world came to be, um, you know, from, for most of human history, we didn't actually know the truth about anything, right? Like the scientific method has only been around for a few hundred years. For most of history, we didn't, we didn't need to know the truth, but we still got along, right? We still sort of survived. We still sort of like made it. So, I'm thinking more and more about like the importance of truth in the first place. I personally enjoy it. I, you know, I read a lot. I, you know, try to try to be as accurate as possible in, in my thoughts and beliefs. But at the same time, like, I think there's this sort of undercurrent in, in the kind of conversations that we're having about like, well, why wouldn't people want to know the truth? And of course, the truth is important. And, and you know, how, how could people not want to know the truth? And why are they saying lies to one another? Um, truth, like, it's just, uh, it's, actually not been that important historically. Uh, most people haven't had the sort of scientifically accurate beliefs. Uh, this is a very recent idea. So that's something else to keep in mind as well. I'm not sure what to do with it, but this is just something that I've been thinking about as far as like, it, it helps me at least to not be so upset that people aren't trying to learn the truth. So, so, so we hear a lot of the discourse today that's uh, every time I interview someone, and I asked them their concern for today's political socio uh, um, environment is, they would say the deviation from facts and truth. Uh, we interviewed Axio CEO, Jim Vanahai. He said, uh, people, don't, people don't do that anymore somehow. Everybody's operating on a sh sh different share of realities. Um, and and you, do, do you see this as a, so you said this is kind of a recent phenomenon. People are relying on scientific truth and such and so on. But, where is this country headed? I mean, I guess in this direction, will people just be operating under two completely different shared realities? I mean, do you foresee a civil war going in the United States in 10, 15 years? <laughs> like because uh, people are just... <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I mean, I've, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I, I couldn't even tell you, man. Like it, it, for me, like I've, I've tried to refrain from, from uh, you know, predicting things just because like, I mean, a year ago, right, like, like last Christmas, did anyone know that 2020 would be the way that it was, right? Like, we do know that there was a deadly pandemic and all the stuff that happened. Um, I don't think so, right? Like, so a year from now, who knows how things are going to go. Um, but as far as like, you know, are we going to live in these, these di di divergent realities? And I mean, pro probably. Uh, I mean, people are going to want to consume the content that they want. Uh, they're going to want to sort of get along with the group that they like the most and sort of get along with the most, their friends, their peers, their groups. Um, I don't know if it's going to turn into violence. Uh, 
I think a lot of this is just sort of like, um, I think Ross Douthat talked about this in his, his recent book, The Decadent Society. It was something like, you know, the Civil War is just going to be played out on social media. It's going to be played out on Twitter. We're all just going to keep posting memes and making fun of each other and dunking or whatever. But, you know, it's, I, I just don't think that, like, people are really going to come to blows. I mean, even all of the, the demonstrations and protests in the U.S. over the summer, I mean, of course, a lot of bad things happened. But, like, there were remarkably uh, few actual homicides and murders um so i don't know uh it's hard to say with that one uh i'm also not even sure really like i said before about like the importance of of like living in that that you know that shared reality um somehow even though we all say maybe we believe in different things like you might believe in this and then this other person of a different political orientation believes in that and neither one of you knows what's going on Somehow both of you managed to get up and go to work and take care of your families and do the things that you actually need to do day to day. A lot of the opinions that we express are um, less to do with trying to like, say something true and, and more to do with just like trying to get along with the group. Uh, I guess another question we, we were thinking about is that we read in your New York Times articles that we talked about how uh, your foster child made you conservative in some sense. Uh, you emphasize the importance of personal responsibility and you say that if you had been told that you were a victim when you were a kid, you would never have made it to where you are now. And the emphasis on uh, individual responsibility has been is now obviously seen as a more conservative idea has that kind of um, policy at least when people hear about individual responsibility they think that's a republican policy and um, jd vance talked about that in hillbilly elegy and you mentioned that at the beginning of the interview as well so i was wondering just what are your thoughts on the values of our current so what jansen would say the postmodern society and how they affect people growing up in so we're talking about social discourse we're talking about this um even the the elites uh, somehow, they, they're much more concerned for the poor, but they're more disconnected from the poor as, as you observed from Yale. So wh where are we headed next? I mean, again, not asking you to make predictions. When I say, where are we headed next? I, I just I wanna hear yeah. your thoughts. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, um, I think the, the, the importance of personal responsibility uh, I think it's it's not there's not enough emphasis placed on it. Um, so on the one hand, I I agree actually. Like since I wrote that article two years ago, the the op-ed in the New York Times, I've I've somewhat shifted a little bit. I still think it's it's very important, but I I've sort of come around to this idea that like look, there are a lot of like there are a lot of companies and a lot of like basically you know you have uh, tech companies and and companies and so on who have like vast sums of money and many of them hire very smart behavioral scientists who are trying to nudge us and to get us to do things that you know maybe we we didn't want to do but we just feel compelled to um i think that this was one of the points maybe in that social dilemma documentary or something um there's yeah, some documentary on netflix about this about social media and its effects on us and so on um and so as an individual, how much, like how much power do you have in the face of, you know, whatever social media company trying to get you to click on ads or click on the next thing or watch these videos, the strength of these algorithms. On the other hand, um, I think we can, 
we can hold both of those ideas in mind at the same time that like, yes, the environment is very powerful. There are a lot of sort of social forces and a lot of money moving around to get us to behave in certain ways. But at the same time, uh, we can still, we, we are still sort of in control of ourselves. We can still choose to some degree how to respond to the, to, uh, the circumstances, whether it, it happens to be poverty or whether it happens to be sort of getting caught in a, in a, in a sort of social media Skinner box or whatever. Um, one example that I read was pretty interesting was um, this book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist. Um, he wrote a book about his experiences in a concentration camp, um, World War II. And he described how, you know, even though all of the prisoners were in, I mean, basically the worst possible uh, environment you could find yourself in, um, still there were people who behaved in more noble and less noble ways, even though all of them were basically in the same tragic, horrible circumstances, there was still sort of variation in their responses and how they chose to help each other or not. So I do think that even if you're in the sort of most dire of circumstances, you can still to some degree have control over how you, how you react to it. Yeah, I guess back to your previous point on uh, postmodernism, Tiger. Like, I guess um, and I took this really cool class at Yale called Truth and Post-Truth taught by Marcy Shore. I don't know if you've taken that class before, Rob. Uh, I, I took a class with her. I took, um, what is it, uh, European Intellectual History Since Nietzsche? Oh, yeah, I did a course like that too. But like, I think she put it really, really clearly. Like postmodernism, like before, what's before, like before postmodernism, like philosophy is just trying to replace existing blocks with better blocks, but postmodernism just kind of melted everything away. So people right now don't really have anything to like hold on to. So I guess Jordan Peterson is just a direct response to postmodernism because if you like back back to the man's search for meaning part, like a lot of people now don't really have meaning in their lives. And I think Jordan Peterson kind of is, is a very, like talks about like bringing conservative ideas of myths and all that to kind of ground people and have have them take personal responsibility. But I guess it's a kind of good segue into the question I really wanted to ask you, because I've been reading a lot of your newsletters and talking about our like human nature, our like natural, like biological tendencies. And I was just kind of curious on like, what are some things that are so innate in human nature that, um, well, no matter what we do, we won't be able to get rid of them. and. Um, and like, what do you think is like the best political system that allows humans to enact their nature and kind of su suppress bad things, like bad parts of it? Because I guess like Christakis, his husband kind of writes similar to that. I haven't really gone into it, but just want to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so one of the, I mean, yeah, one of the themes that, that I touch on in the newsletter, um, you know, something that I, I consider to be sort of more, more innate, something, um, something that's, that's cross-cultural, and this is actually sort of borne out in the, in the research, uh, psychology, anthropology, is the fact that um, we all care deeply about, about social status. We all care about sort of respect and admiration from our peers, um, regardless of, you know, how much we, we may, uh, we, we may sort of, deny or, or distance ourselves from that idea. And, and of course, like, 
based on you know his, historical factors based on culture i mean it varies from person to person and 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 from group to group and culture to culture how that's expressed but you know i I tweeted this, this, um, I shared this post on Twitter a while back. It was something like, you know, you, you might say that you don't care about status, but you know, if you get a group of people together who all say that, then they're all going to compete to see who cares the least about status. Well, I care the, no, I care the least. Um, so that's something that we all, we all care to, to some degree or another about. Um, and, and part of this is because of the ancestral environment from which we came, you know, human beings haven't changed that much since you know we left uh, the Pleistocene, the savannah, you know, hundred thousand years ago or so, you know, de depending on you know the the specific uh, you know, anthropological record you're looking at, but roughly hundred thousand years ago, um, and in that environment, you know, a human can't survive alone. You can't just like you know drop a you know a, a, an early Homo sapien in the in the forest and just let them let them go. Like they're gonna die like you know by the end of the week. But if you drop a hundred of them together, they're all going to work together. They all they all have to sort of coordinate. That has been our species strength. This is something that Nicholas Christakis has, has written uh, about in his book Blueprint, about how you know cooperation and care and looking after one another. You know these are the sort of positive aspects of human nature. But of course, there can be downsides because we care so much about how we're viewed by others that can take a darker turn. Um, you know how. Like, what is the best political system? Like, I, I don't know. Man. I'm, <laughs> I think this has been debated at length since Locke or before. I don't even know. Aristotle, like, who, all, all the smart guys have been thinking about this idea forever. Um, I think that our, so, so you know, to bring it back to Jordan Peterson, I remember a quote of his, I might be butchering it to some extent, but I remember him saying that, like, you know, if you, if you sort of look at, like, you know, all of the societies that have existed throughout history, like, any system that isn't actively trying to kill you is actually a pretty good system. Um, and just because of like the, the amount of tragedy, uh, you know, throughout our species history. So I think that the one we have now, um, there are, there are a lot of complaints, a lot of imperfections, um, you know, a lot of work to do, but I think we, we all live like pretty good lives. Um, you know, I have, my, I have my share of complaints and, and critiques. Um, especially, you know, maybe if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen like some of my writing too about the deterioration of family life in the U.S., especially among more working class families. But you know, in, in terms of like the historical median, we're all we're all doing pretty pretty good in the system. Rob, so we talked about cancel culture. We talked about how people are under social influences and they might feel pressured to. Uh, maybe this is not a good analogy, but follow, follow the herd. Uh, but, uh, and when I subscribe to your newsletter, your first newsletter, your welcoming newsletter tells the story that we've already talked about, which is the Yale professor who was forced to resign over unpopular email, Jordan Peterson being disinvited from Cambridge. We cited those examples. But when I asked a lot of people on the left uh, of these, you know, cases of cancel culture, they would say, yes, we agree they're problematic, but these are very fringe cases. These are a speck of truth being overblown. And the larger trends is that we are in a rapid shift of societal norms towards the better, towards the better, towards progress. So I, I wanted to hear you because you say one, one of the trends you are seeing in institutions is social mobs cancel people for dissenting against ortho orthodoxy. You say that, but 
how how severe is this phenomenon? How bad is it to? Because uh, some people just say we we acknowledge it exists, but it's just not that bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been some interesting research on this. Um, the political scientists uh, James Gibson and Joseph Sutherland recently uh, released a paper um, called "Keeping Your Mouth Shut." Um, like spiraling self-censorship in the U.S. Um, over the last however many decades. And what basically found is that uh, self-censorship is on the rise. Self-censorship defined as like, basically, do you feel free to express your, your beliefs uh, in public? Um, it's, it's continued to climb in the 1950s, the height of McCarthyism. Something like 13% of Americans said they didn't feel free to express themselves. In 1980, uh, it was something like 20%. And in 2019, it was 40%. Um, and this wasn't a partisan issue either, interestingly. Um, I think like cancel culture and, and this kind of like, often associated with the left. I think it, you know, it's probably more associated with like the, the far left, the fringe left, um, because I often notice that they will cancel sort of center left people as well. But um, it's, it's, there's no partisan difference. So roughly 40% of Republicans and 40% of Democrats Democrats say that they do not feel free to express themselves, um, and it's it's been climbing. It's uh, other other research has shown that um, the people who are you know if you break it down by political orientation and education, um, the the higher up in education you go, the less the more concerned you are to express yourself, and the more concerned you are you might get fired for saying the wrong political belief. Um, so it's you know it's pretty low. I think for for people with a high school education only. Something like 25% say they're concerned about getting fired for saying the wrong thing. And then by the time you get to the postgraduate level, it's above 50%. Um, so, you know, basically, like, it, it is growing if you ask people themselves. So I guess, like, maybe some of the, the people you speak about, maybe they might say something like, well, they're just mistaken. But I, I don't think people just, like, randomly come to the conclusion, like, you know, I, I don't see why it would double since 1980 that like, oh, now we can't express ourselves anymore. Regardless of your political orientation, people are thinking this way. It's happening in university campuses too. Um, over time, more and more university students have said that they are afraid to express their beliefs in classrooms and uh, into their peer groups. So, um, and of course, like we're, we're seeing examples of it. I, I think we often see the most, um, whatever, like the most famous or well-known cases of this. So, you know, the Christakis case, Jordan Peterson, sort of like well-known public figures, most of us hear the news of. I, we, we often don't hear the lesser known cases of just your sort of typical white collar worker works in an office in a cubicle somewhere and, you know, posted a meme somewhere and then they get fired. This happens more often than we think. Um, so, I mean, we can all. I mean, I think we can also just sort of intuitively understand it. Like, do you personally feel free to say everything that you want to say uh, at Princeton or at Yale or me at Cambridge? And for me, at least, the answer is no. Uh, and I'm probably more, uh, you know, expressive than than most of my you know most of my friends or my peers in terms of like criticisms and so forth. So I think it is a it's a serious problem. Um, and we all, I think not all of us, but many of us, I think we are sort of pretending that it's not, and we're all sort of hoping that it will go away or that it'll, it's just a, you know, it's just a fashionable trend that will blow over. But yeah, I think uh, in the meantime, one thing that's happening is 
it's actually creating a, a barrier for upward mobility. Um, I wrote about this in a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how moral fashions are changing so fast that like now if you want to enter the upper class, um, it's hard, man. Like it was hard for me five, six years ago. Like I was reading The Atlantic, I was reading New York, like I said, I was reading all this place. And even then, like I still didn't quite get what it was like at a place like Yale, like what's acceptable to say or not, or what will sort of like um, garner approval versus disapproval. And so now, like, I think it's, uh, it's especially hard, you know, you have to sort of like keep up on, on, on the latest trends. And this is hard to do when, you know, when you're just trying to make, make ends meet. Um, so we talked earlier about political polarization, the left and the right or Democrats and Republicans, whatever. I think the bigger, um, the, the, the more sort of potentially troublesome uh, gap is between sort of white collar and blue collar uh, and what they believe and what's sort of culturally acceptable or not uh, in their environments. I think that a, an educated Republican and an educated Democrat have much more in common with each other than either one of them do with a working class person. Yes, I think that's a perfect segue into talking about social mobility and higher education, which is something you also write about and are quite critical of uh, the current direction that we're headed. Um, I guess to, to start off, um, I, I remember reading uh, your New York Times, a New York Post article, you criticize educated people's emphasis on college diplomas for underprivileged kids, saying that the focus should be on stabilizing families instead, and that education is really a red herring. So you said, we can try to get more foster kids to go to college, but as a starting point, we should try to keep them out of jail that starts at home. So what, so what do you think as an alternative for social mobility um, currently right now in terms of, so uh, is it more education investment in, in public education into non-liberal arts college education, for example, uh, vocational training, trade school, that kind of uh, degree programs? Or do we do what a lot of these uh, huge universities are doing, which is uh, you know expanding financial aid, letting more diverse kids come in and there's also the whole thing about affirmative action that we don't have to go into but that, it's very seems to be quite a complex landscape right now yeah 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 I mean it's a it's a good question and and that was you know I didn't even I didn't even want to like touch on any of that but uh, but the editor of that piece was like you know we want to hear some sort of personal reflection about this or what we should do about it or it's, it's New York Post Rob it's, it's New York Post so you gotta <laughs> they all want to yeah you can't just say something they also want to what do we do about it right mm -hmm. and so um i i just think that we put way too much emphasis on education uh in in the u.s and and maybe just like in the in the sort of uh whatever in the uk as well but basically like my my point there was that like why are we all focusing like why so why are we all focusing on trying to get everyone into college like, why do we think that that's the only way to, like you say, achieve open mobility? The other point that I was trying to make uh, is that, look, even if every single like kid in poverty or every foster kid goes to Princeton or Yale, they're still going to be carrying like the scars of their childhood. Like it doesn't like it doesn't matter if you have an Ivy League degree if you have undergone like serious trauma. Right. And so like, who cares if you're making six figures, right? Like you're not going to obtain that kind of 
fulfillment and happiness if you lived like a really tough life as a little kid and those early life experiences are disproportionately influential on our psychology later on in life so you know it's uh it's something that that basically i think we should we should be focused much more on the beginning of life rather than adulthood right like we're all focusing on what happens when kids turn 18 and where they go next but why don't we start focusing on like what happens when they first come into the world and what those first 18 years are like um i mean there's some really interesting you know uh speculations on on why we do this um there's a um, psychologist alice miller who's observed that when you read the biographies of great figures uh in history uh oftentimes they sort of gloss over their childhoods you know they say like so and so had a tough childhood and their mom was mean and suddenly they're in high school or whatever and now they're off inventing something or whatever um and Alice Miller suggests that like oftentimes these these great people had like really, really tough lives as kids, really under underwent a lot of neglect or abuse or whatever, and people just don't want to read about it. It's too painful to read. Um, so they just gloss over it. Um, I think we should focus more on that, try to keep kids out of jail. And what I meant by that was like give them the kind of childhood where they are not on the track to get into trouble, where they have some at-home supervision, where they have someone looking after them whatever, making sure they do homework, making sure they're staying out of trouble. You know, in that, uh, the Hillbilly LG movie, right? Like, you know, you saw the J.D. Vance uh, character or whatever, smoking weed and doing dumb things, but he had his mama who was like trying to keep him away from those kids and trying to keep him on track. And, you know, I think having a figure like that uh, is, we should, we should be focusing more on something like that rather than like, let's try to get every kid into college or whatever. I think the vocation school idea is good too. Um, you know, just to be perfectly frank, like a lot of, a lot of kids don't like school very much. They're not interested in working in an office job or, you know, wearing a tie to work every day. Um, that's not the ideal life for a lot of people. They'd rather be working with their hands or, or doing something, you know, sort of uh, more, more physical. Um, I think about my friends in high school and how their lives turned out. So I had five close friends in high school and you know two of them ended up in prison uh one of them works at a supermarket one of them works at a car wash uh one of them joined the military like me and now he's uh he's in a community college and you know he he seems to sort of not be doing as well as he wants to to do so a lot of people you know they sort of see examples like me or examples like jd and think like, oh, well, you know, you send a young kid off to the military and then they'll get their life together. And then when they get out, they'll sort of they'll end up at Yale or whatever. But that's not the norm. Like even when guys who have the childhood that I had go to the military and they get out, like oftentimes, you know, whatever demons they had uh, catch up with them later um, and they don't end up having the happily ever after story of, you know, of Hollywood movies or whatever. So I think that we should try to focus more on on you know, get, not every kid may go to Yale, but we can give more kids decent childhoods, I think. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of this interesting stat I read um, like a couple months ago. I think sing, like in 1960s, most kids kind of grew up in like two parent households. But then right now, I think, I don't know if the, what the number is, but I think the number is like around 50. Correct me if I'm wrong. And um, I guess this goes well, back so, to so that's that study um i posted that um a while back actually um and so this is um from the it's either from 
political scientist Robert Putnam, who's at Harvard, or, or Charles Murray, the, the political scientist at AEI. But basically, the finding was that in 1960, if you look at affluent and working class families, um, in 1960, 95% of affluent families and working class families, uh, children were raised by both of their birth parents in 1960. And then by 2005, the number for affluent families was 85% of children raised by both of their birth parents. And for working class families, it had dropped to 30%. So essentially, since 1960, affluent families have remained the same, more or less. And for working class families, it has completely just deteriorated. Um, I remember when I was at, uh, I, was, I was in class at Yale, actually, this was I think my second year or something. Uh, the professor, so this was um, like a psych psychology of the family class or something. Uh, Christy Lockhart is the name. And so she basically gave us an anonymous survey, an anonymous poll um, that we answered. And it was, um, how many of you grew up with both of your birth parents? And it was a seminar of 25 people. And out of 25 people, there were only two people who did not grow up with both of their birth parents. It was me and another student. So that's you know less than 10%. And if you look at the research for other elite schools, I think Cornell, there was a study you know 15 years ago or something, which roughly showed that like 10% of the students weren't raised by their birth parents. So that like the family life is another. I mean, there's there's so many differences in terms of you know upper class and working class culture. But one is just like your typical person, your typical kid in a working class neighborhood um, doesn't know, like doesn't live with their dad, may not know who their dad is. Like, it's just um, like, so me, I, I mentioned I had five friends. Out of the six of us, zero of us were raised by both of our birth parents. Um, you know, I, of course, live with my adoptive mother and my adoptive father, you know, severed ties with me. Another friend, um, you know, he lived with his dad and his mom had left. Another friend was raised by his grandmother because his dad was in jail and his mom was addicted to drugs. Like these kinds of stories are the norm in sort of more, you know, lower middle class to working class neighborhoods. And it's basically unheard of uh, among the affluent. Yeah. So how do you think society or like the government should like help address this kind of issue? Because it's very... Yeah, it's more, it's more societal slash cultural instead of governmental. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm not sure if there's any sort of special policy. Um, I've actually talked to this other guy uh, uh, on another podcast recently about some sort of spitballing ideas. Um, and I, there was one analogy that I had come up with about smoking and how uh, in 1960, like, I don't know what the percentage was, but it was like, you know, basically uh, a large percentage of Americans smoked cigarettes. And today, you know, very few. Um, so there was like a sort of public awareness campaign. So they didn't actually outlaw cigarettes, right? They didn't outlaw them, they didn't ban them. Uh, they didn't throw people in jail for smoking. But there was this sort of awareness campaign of like, if you smoke cigarettes, here's what can happen. Um, every single packet of cigarettes has the warning label. Um, they sort of de-glamorized it in media and culture. Um, I think like the old TV shows in the 60s, you know, I Love Lucy, they would be smoking cigarettes or whatever. And then it became sort of taboo on network television to show characters smoking. So they sort of um, yeah, de-glamorized it. And I think maybe we could do something similar with families. I think that you know, pe people could, uh, people may respond poorly to this and think that they're being judged or whatever. But I thought that, like, for example, you could put up posters or billboards 
billboards or something on subways or you know public 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 areas that say like you know kids who are raised by both of their parents are you know three times more likely to graduate from high school or you know on average earn this much more money or this much less likely to stay out of prison um, and just sort of put those out there and because I, I think most people don't know this they don't know what's going on with families and and childhood outcomes based on family structure um, and it doesn't even necessarily be, have to be about education or money it can be about like likelihood of going to prison or likelihood of becoming addicted to drugs or um, all kinds of different things um, so I think like one could be just sort of this public awareness campaign it would have to be done in a in a sensitive way of course but it's possible that that um, just sort of Putting the, the information out there might might shift things a little. Rob, another issue that's been on my mind, and I think uh, underlying train of thought throughout our conversation, is that you cannot devise simple solutions where you simply put a kid in an environment and expect everything to work out, which is what you said. And there's been all kinds of political science and economic studies about this. So. We had uh, a, a Berkeley, a, a Berkeley economics professor, Elora de Renancourt, uh, on the show a couple months ago, and she was talking about how uh, during the Great Migration, if you just move the black people from south to the north, it doesn't improve their outcomes that much better because what happens is they move to those cities in in the north that used to have a lot of great resources, but you see the white flight, right? White people simply leave and create their own neighborhoods. So the black people simply end up in another bad place. So you cannot just do migration and give people housing vouchers. And we see that same thing, which is which is like educational vouchers. You give people financial aid and subsidies. So Jensen and I went to the board, the same boarding school. In our boarding school, I think what we observed is that you can have low-income kids and uh, minority kids come into this school but uh, they will simply be excluded from, you know, the, the rich kid circles or, or they simply uh, are kind of being seen as the bottom run of the social ladder in, in, the, in the high school microcosm kind of social hierarchy. And they, it do, they probably do even worse. They probably feel horrible. They have all kinds of mental burden. So I think that's kind of the messaging that we've been trying to get here, which is that there seems to need a, a cultural societal shift there. And and I think there seems to be a greater disconnect between the, the, the kids in elitist institutions like Princeton, like Yale, who are gonna soon become the ruling class, but they're increasingly disconnected from the rest of the society. Even though Yale and Princeton are, are behind these campaigns, they're actually admitting more low-income students than ever. Every year, there's like from, from 30% to 4% full ride, whatever, uh, it's getting increasingly diverse. Uh, we're focusing more on social justice, but it seems that when you have those kids in those institutions after they're admitted, that doesn't mean they'll have a good time, and and that seems to be a greater issue than, than just admitting them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think um, was there not uh, there was either like a book or a big paper about this about like uh, it had like some kind of clever name like you know being underprivileged in a privileged place or something like that. Um, Basically, what happens when you put like you know people from low-income backgrounds in elite institutions and the sort of you know, the burdens they carry with them? Um, yeah, I I really don't know if there's like any any like I, I wouldn't know what the solution is for something like that. I think it's important, of course, to like have that kind of diversity of of, of views and backgrounds and and yeah, if we can identify more talented people 
from uh, from dire circumstances and and help them up. That's great. But um, of course, like once they get there, what do you do? Uh, you know, at, at least for me, my way of of managing it was to just like find people who were similar, or at least as similar as I could find, uh, who understood what it was like, and sort of like just talk about it together. Um, and to just uh, sort of learn, like, well, what have you learned about this place? And I'll share what I've learned about it and um, sort of navigate it in that way. But yeah, uh, it, it will never be as easy for a low income kid to integrate fully into a place like Princeton or Yale as it is for you know someone who went to Exeter. It's just, it's just not never gonna be like that. In the same way, I mean, it's not just to do with like, because you didn't have enough money or something like it, it's just it's a cultural issue uh a kid from exeter is going to have a so so like if you take a blue collar kid and put him in another blue collar neighborhood they'll integrate pretty quick but if you take the kid from exeter and try to put him in that neighborhood he or she's going to have a really tough time right it's a cultural issue and i'm not sure if like whatever if you try to create like a you know integrating into a low-income neighborhood program and like putting this Exeter kid through it. And like, I'm just not sure like how much they're gonna glean or if it's really gonna help that much, um, you know, but I, 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 I think that like, I, I wouldn't even know who would put it together or like what would be contained in this like packet. But like one idea just off the top of my head would be to sort of like do what I did, but but in a more sort of structured way, which is to say that like if you're a low income kid and you sort of win the lottery and get into get into you know Stanford or Princeton or whatever, like here is a list of sort of like like cultural cultural sort of artifacts and articles and interesting things that you should know about the kind of people you're about to be spending a lot of time with. Um, even things like what I mentioned before, like 85% of these people live with both of their birth parents. Like even that simple fact would like, I think sort of help people to understand where these people are coming from, what it's like there and how different it is from the way that you grew up or the way that I grew up in this case, you know? So I would know like, and of course there would be so, like, I think this would be politically fraught uh, because people would say like, well, why should we include that article? And are, you know, are you trying to brainwash these low income kids or whatever? Like it, it would be challenging for sure. Uh, if anyone tried to do this in an official way, but you know, maybe, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could put something together <laughs> in my, my unofficial, my unofficial way. But I think this is one thing that could, that could help. And, and, and I think the reverse would be good too. Um, if you, yeah, if you manage to get into an elite school, regardless of your, your income, uh, I think it would be useful to have some kind of class or some kind of like reading list for privileged students to understand what life is like for the other the other side the other half uh, rob we do have those readings i don't know anti-racist readings we we, <laughs> we have the whole we have the oh whole reading list of anti-privilege anti by the way i'm not making a politicized statement here i'm just saying the, the schools are really trying see they're really genuinely trying to integrate and trying to yeah. bridge the gaps between diversity but it yeah. seems that they're not bridging the gaps between people because because it seems to be less of a not saying there isn't a racial divide but but there's a, a class divide a socioeconomic divide there's a cultural divide that is so great yeah 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 i mean 
and, and you know what? Like, fair enough. Like, I, I get it. Like, maybe I haven't read that book, but like, if people think that that's important to like help, whatever, fine, put it on the list. But like, I think you should also put other other readings on the list as well that maybe have a different perspective. Um, look, racism is a problem, but I think that social class is um, is is also something that that is is more overlooked. Say, like, I think a lot of Students at elite colleges are very concerned with racism and think a lot about it and want to do the right thing by that. But I think because class is so often neglected and overlooked, that's something that maybe we could also focus on alongside those other concerns. I don't know what book it would be. Uh, Dignity is, uh, you know, just one book off the top of my head that's a fairly light read in terms of like the the density of the the you know the complexity of the the reading, say. But like in terms of the content, it is pretty heavy, emotionally heavy. Um, you know, Chris Arnade, uh, author of the book, basically like, you know, went, went around the country and, and uh, spent time like sitting in diners and churches and poor neighborhoods, talking to people all across the U.S., you know, poor white, Hispanic, black, whatever, all races, all sort of whatever backgrounds uh, and sort of wrote about his experiences and, and took pictures of their living circumstances, where they spent their days, what it was like for them. Um, and I think like just sort of spending a little bit of time going through, uh, you know, learning about that could could go a long way to helping people to understand uh, the country more. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's a, I guess in like colleges, I kind of see like everyone just putting everything on, like blaming everything on race. Like I don't see, they're not really looking at the big picture and not really seeing things more nuanced and not thinking of second order consequences. So yeah, that's- Yeah, there was, um, there's this scholar at Penn. He's a, I think he's a Marxist scholar, actually. I can't remember his name or, or her name. Uh, I just read uh, this article by this person, basically or critiquing this idea of, of the way that we talk about racism in, you know, in the, the discourse. Basically, this person says that like people are perfectly fine with the way things are as long as the one percent is uh, exactly reflective of the country as a whole. So it should be, you know, whatever, like. This person, you know, it should be 16% black, 16% Hispanic, 6% Asian, and this percent white, this percent LGBT. Like basically, everything in the country can remain the same as long as the elite look like the way that we want it to look like, um, rather than actually trying to change and understand and and you know whatever restructure. I didn't agree with all of it, but but in that sense, I I sort of got it that like my impression oftentimes among um, you know. Among highly educated people, is that they they care more about you know representation, meaning like, you know, who, who whoever's elite, as long as they sort of reflect the, the makeup of the country, then the sort of the social and economic system is totally fine. Yeah, yeah. It's like the equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity debate. Um. Yeah. Yeah. To some degree, yeah. I think there is this desire. Well, kind of. I think even that is. Um, not exactly accurate. I, I don't think it's like equality of outcome uh, in terms of like, yeah, in terms of class or whatever, but I think more equality of outcome in terms of like, we want the, the makeup of Yale to look exactly this way, even though, um, you know, e even though like the, the black and the Hispanic students are still like from the top 1% of American families oftentimes. Um, yeah, like very like, yeah, very few people, like, like I said before, like very few people actually came from from tough 
uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. So it seems to be more about like looking diverse rather than being diverse. Yeah. Um, I, I think so when Chance and I were in high school, we, we had some naive solutions, which is like, don't admit the legacy kids who are assholes. I mean, like, yeah, his grandpa <laughs> went to this school, but like, he's clearly an asshole. Like you, you see the kid when you interview and you know that kid's going to haze and bully some other poor kid when he gets it. Like you can see that, like, yes, his family's donating a ton of money, but like, just get rid of those kids. Like, I don't know. I, I, so Yale has, has, uh, uh, what's it called? Secret societies, right? You guys have those secret societies. Princeton has eating clubs. Uh, Harvard has finals clubs, whatever those things are called. Right. Uh, horrendous. Absolutely horrible. It, we, One thing I found interesting was Skull and Bones, like the most known Yale secret society. I don't think it has taken a single white male in a very long time. Oh my, dude, yeah. what are you saying? What? That's what, that's, I, that's what I've heard this too, to, to be <laughs> fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how long it's been, but I've heard that like it's, um, yeah, they, they, they sort of like have uh, very, very few, uh, yeah, white male members. Um, Again, this is just something I've heard. Maybe it's not even true, but yeah, I've heard this as well. Um, I on the legacy idea, I think that this, like, you know, I'm, I don't like the idea, but I'm not. Uh, yeah, I guess we could try to get rid of it. I mean, I, I have no strong feelings one way or the other, but I remember I talked to this, um, yeah, this this female student at Yale. She was a first generation student. Um, I think her parents were immigrants. Um, yeah, so she, you know, she's sort of like, you know, relative to most Yale students uh, it's from a sort of tougher life. And, you know, we were talking about legacy. She's like, oh, like, like I, I would get rid of legacy instantly. Like, I think it's so bad. And then I asked her, um, you know, I told, you know, I said, well, you want to go to law school, you're probably going to be a very successful person. And when your kid gets older, um, do you think that they should get some, you know, some some special uh, you know, consideration for Yale admissions if they should apply here? And she said, well, well, yeah, I mean, I worked really hard. Like, I worked really hard to give them this opportunity. So I think that this, you know, and so, like, I think that there's this mindset, that, like, you know, even if you're a first gen student and, you know, you believe that legacy should be dismantled, but then when you have kids, suddenly you want a legacy admission consideration. So I think um, it's going to be really hard, hard to get rid of it. I, I personally, like, I, I, I've read enough research, like my, my sort of reading of everything is that, like, if, if you're, if you and your spouse are smart and care for your kid and have resources, then the kid's going to turn out fine, basically. Um, but I know that a lot of the you know, sort of helicopter parents are preoccupied and, and uh, there's that varsity blue scandal and all that stuff trying to trying to bribe their kids in. So I think what, uh, one of my friends was, and I were just chatting last night, he was like, this is what you do. You uh, go to those uh, global corporations that are dodging taxes where you go to the tech, the Hamptons, where you go to uh, one of those secret societies, you go to them and you just bring out the guillotines and you just, <laughs> and you just start the revolution. <laughs> and, then, uh, uh, and then two minutes in, everybody would be like, okay, why don't we just do the 80% income tax? Why don't we, <laughs> why don't yeah, we abolish I, this? <laughs> I find That's it fascinating that that like, that revolutionary spirit is right. is much more uh, you know apparent in in very affluent people because like I think one one issue is that like you know 
if you're if you're at Yale, for example, uh, and you're like, people tend to compare themselves upward, like they have this upward social comparison. So if you're upper middle class and your family makes half a million dollars a year and you're at Yale, you're not comparing like you're not you think of yourself as middle class because you are looking at the uh, the kids of the billionaires, the kids of the legacies who come from these you know old iconic American families or whatever, like you know, even though you make 10 times more than the median American or your family makes 10 times more than the median American family, you're still viewing yourself as like a little bit downtrodden. Like, you know, I'm not doing as well as the, the, the you know, even though I'm in the 1%, I'm not in the 0.01% and therefore we need to have a revolution. Like that, that is the mindset that I'm seeing. Whereas if you actually look at the person in the, in the 50th percentile of income in the US, they don't want to overthrow the country. Like they're just trying to make ends meet. They want to like live with their, take care of their families. Like they just want to like sort of live a normal life. They're not looking to like bring a guillotine to Jeff Bezos house the way that a lot of these other like sort of, you know, upper middle-class students uh, and graduates are. It's, it's very interesting to me. Um, you guys have maybe seen some of like Peter Turchin's work on intra-elite competition, but I think that that idea has a lot of explanatory power with, uh, with what, what we see. I mean, for Jensen. example, if you look at, oh, sorry, well, I was, Rob. yeah, I was just going to say that, like, if you look at the sort of leaders of revolutions and social movements, they're not led by members of the underclass. Um, historically speaking, they've been members of like second tier elites or like educated people. So you know, if you look at, um, uh, for example, uh, Mao Zedong, if you look at Vladimir Lenin, if you look at um, even Hitler, uh, you look at, um, I don't know, uh, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, the founding fathers of the U.S., right? Like the founding fathers of the U.S., the framers or whatever you want to call them, they led a revolution against the British monarchy. But then if you look at the backgrounds of George Washington and Ben Franklin and these guys, like these guys were aristocratic, well-to-do guys, right? And they led the, the revolution against the king. So the people who lead social movements and revolutions who want to topple society, these are not like the downtrodden poor people people who are just like trying to get some bread like no these are like envious angry elites who think that they should be in charge not the current elites so would you say a more accurate uh, accurate word like instead of luxury beliefs would be like second tier intellectual beliefs i think that's more of a mouthful <laughs> i don't know if that would have been <laughs> <on quite laughs> well. the uh, second but, tier but I, elites beliefs <laughs> the second tier elites. but but i think that the the, the current elites like the, the established elites also um, maybe they don't necessarily believe the luxury beliefs, but they will express them. Like whatever the the CEO they'll pander to that. Yes, they'll yes. pander. That's right. Be one because of the, the second tiers are the consumers. Whatever. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, there was this uh, psychologist Clay Clay Rutledge, uh, great psychologist. He had a tweet that I think he yeah it went viral. It was something like the you know what we have now are companies pretending to care about social justice to sell products to people who pretend to hate capitalism. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that pretty much encapsulates what's, what's happening here. Um, the sort of financial and business elite are, you know, cynically exploiting the sort of cultural elite uh, in order to make money. They feed on each wow. other. Wow. Jensen, do you still have any Last minute question. We've been going out for like two hours now. It's been such a gratif such a fascinating and satisfying conversation. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess I just have one question, but not not related to this at all. I'm just like really, I think your your Twitter page is really cool, and there are a lot of cool articles that I think they're very hard to find for a normal person. Like how do you find 
and all these interesting articles and like any interesting books you've read that like really changed your life recently? Uh, yeah, well, okay. So like the article, well, oftentimes people send things to me now. So it's really weird. Like the way I started out on Twitter was just like posting things that I read and then like it slowly started to grow unexpectedly. I didn't expect it to grow the way it did. And then people started following me and then they will send me interesting things or email me or DM me. Um, authors of so starting last year authors of books started sending me uh free books just like review copies of upcoming books that haven't even been wow. released yet and they're like asking me like oh can you read this and tell me what you think or whatever and i'm like yeah sure you know so um that's like one way i i sort of obtain content or whatever um and then yeah as far as like books that have sort of changed my life or whatever like that's um uh i guess like so so per, like personal um like for personal growth or development or whatever uh one book that has that has helped me has been um the war of art by stephen pressfield um basically just like a book about like how to like obtain the right mindset and discipline to get the work that you need to do done and, um and like i'm sure both of you as like you know as, aspirational elites uh, are, are are quite busy with your lives and and a lot of people that i know are, are extremely busy and like are trying to like basically find the motivation and the time and everything like how, how do you get stuff done and so this book has been really helpful the war of art um a book that is yeah i guess it's like a little it's a little bit dense but it, it can be read by um you know typical you know just a smart person who's curious um uh the the book uh blueprint by nicholas christakis um just sort of like the i think the subtitle is evolutionary origins of a good society sort of like goes into, you know, uh, social psychology, how we ended up getting along, getting along with one another. Um, another book, Hierarchy in the Forest uh, by Christopher Bame. Uh, he's, a, he's an anthropologist, yeah. And he basically just documents um, how, like the, the sort of politics of hunter-gatherer societies and how they operate, how, how they navigate, um, concerns about reputation, about status, about resource allocation. And I think it's really enlightening to read because again, like I, I mentioned this before that like, even though we live in the modern world, we still have this sort of uh, psychology and this, the same sort of stone age brains, let's say, of, of, uh, of those sort of earlier, earlier societies. And so I think this helps to sort of understand ourselves and, and uh, social groups more. Uh, Rob, are you an optimist or pessimist uh oh man uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about where we're headed i don't know um i think you know i i've been mostly persuaded by like you know i think steven pinker had that book enlightenment oh, now no hans uh, rosling <laughs> <laughs> hans rosling has the book, book factfulness are you not a fan no, oh, I'm not. I'm not not a fan. I'm just saying he because uh, he's a very big optimist in in many ways. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So to some degree, I think like mm -hmm. I, I'm persuaded by some of that. Like in terms of like the material growth and the development and comforts and everything. Yes. But I think that like that's not enough. Um, you know, basically, like George Orwell has this this uh, famous quote about how like you know a lot of a lot of people believe that like once we have our creature comforts then we'll be set right like once you have a comfortable bed and you have food and you have the sort of uh your physical needs met then then we'll be set but that's not the way people are like 
that's not where we came from. That's not, that's not the only thing we desire. So I do get concerned sometimes about like how, you know, like we've been talking about this for a lot of this conversation, you have sort of the most comfortable privileged people who are like calling for revolution and like joking about guillotines and stuff. Like one thing I'm concerned about is that like, we will become so comfortable that we don't know, like we don't know like what, um, what humans are capable of. We've, we've become um, so disconnected from our roots, uh, what, what human societies have looked like up until 10, 10 minutes ago, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, Thomas Sowell, the, the great economist, um, the Hoover Institution, taught at Stanford too, um, he draws a distinction between, uh, so he calls it the, the constrained versus the unconstrained views of human nature. Pinker actually writes about this too. I think he gave it a better name, uh, the, tragic, the tragic vision versus the utopian vision. Uh, and so the utopian vision is that um, this idea that like if, if you sort of arrange social structures in the right way and sort of like let people do what they want, um, then, then that will lead to a great society, right? Like if, if we could just tweak the dials just right, um, that will lead to this kind of great flourishing and we will sort of reach this utopia. And the tragic vision is this idea that like humans are inherently flawed and selfish and petty, and we should do our best to set up social institutions to sort of minimize the uglier aspects of our nature and to channel the more positive aspects of it. Um, I think that like, you know, one thing, for example, one example of this, I think would be something like, like freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is, um, it's not, it's not Lindy, you know, to use Nassim Taleb's uh, word about like, it's, it's not, it's not something that's existed historically. It is a very new idea uh, that, uh, that you should be able to speak your mind in a society. Um, historically, saying what you wanted could get you killed. Like that was the norm historically. Um, and so the, the current debates about it, I think that this, this is potentially dangerous because if you want to, if you want to sort of uh, like maintain and uphold a norm that cuts against the grain of human nature, which I think free speech does, uh, you have to work really hard to convince people, yes, free speech is important. We know that it's uncomfortable. We know that you don't like it. We know that blah, 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 like all the, all, like there are so many uh, potential downsides of free speech, but the downside of getting rid of it is far worse. And so if there are things that cut against it, we have to work even harder to, to maintain it. Um, some, you know, something else, for example, uh, would be, uh, you know, sexual relationships. Um, the evolutionary psychologist Steve Stewart Williams has written in his book um, about about whether humans are naturally monogamous or uh, polygamous, whether we're meant to be with one person. What is our sort of like our natural way of being in social relationships, in in romantic relationships? Um, and basically his conclusion is that we're, we're both, we're capable of both. Um, there is no like optimal way to have a relationship. There's no natural way. If you look at hunter-gatherer societies, they do tend towards more monogamy, but there is of course cheating and infidelity and some, some of them do have um, different kinds of relationship arrangements. But if you, if you wanna have a society that, um, you know, that, that is best for children, uh, the research does show that like living with both of their parents and two parents 
family is the best for children. And so if you want to uphold that norm for the benefit of children, then, um, then yeah, we should, we should do our best to sort of uphold, maintain, and, and preserve that sort of institution of, of having kids raised by, by two parents, even if we don't want to. Just so much information to unpack, Rob. I, I, but I don't want to take more of your time. We, we've going on for for a long time. This uh, fascinating yeah, yeah, yeah. discussion. So, so uh, I guess uh, a concluding question would be: since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would be your your punchline? I guess for for this conversation. Um, yeah, I, I guess like my punchline would be: you know, try maybe tr just reflect more about how you arrived at the beliefs you currently have. Did you reason your way into those? Did you come to those on your own? Or, um, or were you influenced in, in, in ways that, that you haven't thought much about? Well, uh, I have to ask another follow-up then. I'm sorry. I, I, that was supposed to be the concluding question, but let me ask. A, that's a, that, so one of my best friends and I, who is a, he's a very talented guy who also does a lot of interviews with me and he and I got in a debate about how we arrive at beliefs. And, uh, what I, I'm inherently kind of skeptical of how kids at our age arrive at our beliefs because we're like, what, 20? We don't know anything. We, we haven't really finished our undergrads degree and we think that this policy has this effect. We think that this person is bad and good. Uh, it seems that we're completely incapable of making those judgments. So I ask him, how do you arrive at his belief? He says, you have to take an ideological stance on certain things. So if you think there are merits to both democratic uh, tax policies and Republicans tax policies, then you should take an ideological stance. Are you someone of the left or are you someone of the conservative side? So, but, but that seems to be a tautology for me, which is that you, you believe in something because you value the merit of, of an argument, but you only value the merit of an argument because you believe in something. That, that is the tautology of actually knowing anything. So uh, I don't know how, how to arrive at beliefs then, because if, if I don't trust my, because if I can't do the research myself, if I can't do the data survey myself, then I am simply forming my beliefs based on a set of facts that are floating on the internet that I don't know who fed it to me, right? This survey says two thirds of America believes in Black Lives Matter. This survey says 80% of conservatives are, I don't know, you know? So I, I, I just don't know anymore. Tiger, yeah, yeah. I think, oh, sorry, Rob. Um, no, please, please go ahead. But um, yeah, back to Nassim. I think I, I read in his book, he's a big fan of Karl Popper, I think. Karl Popper's ideas would probably help you. Like, like he, he thinks that like the asymmetry of falsification, right? So basically you can have everything prove a theory, right? But it can't never fully prove it. Like one disproof is enough to topple it, you know? Right. So you just have to keep like an open mind probably <laughs> and just like be open to things to like falsify ideas. That's... Yeah. Uh... Yeah, that, I, of course, like that's a, that's a really tough question. I, I would say for me, I mean, the way that I, I tend to think about it, although, of course, like I also have my doubts, um, is to basically like identify what your actual values are. I think that like often we don't, um, we talk a lot about facts and truth and what's true, what's not true, but a lot of, I think a lot of what's actually driving the debates might be a difference in values. Um, and I think we're prone to assuming everyone shares the same values we do because it's hard to believe that our values are wrong or that someone would disagree with them um so once you identify your values then you can sort of like determine well what's the best way to achieve those ends um i yeah this, this is this is a deaf conversation too about like 
well, what, how do you, how do you shape your values? What do those come from? And so on. And, and often that, that comes from, you know, culture from society. Um, no one sort of pops into the world with, with their, with their own values. So yeah, just something to think about. Rob, that was a wonderful concluding uh, argument. And well, thank you so much for joining us again. It's just fascinating conversation. Would love to have you back on the show anytime when you uh, inevitably have your next big finding and breakthrough in your research and, and new, new thoughts. I would love to have you back on the show if you have time. So thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Tiger. Thanks, Jensen. Yeah, uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, uh, and, and and Rob, one last thing: uh, How can people learn more about your work? Follow you? Subscribe to your newsletter? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a website yet. I'm I'm working on it now. But you can just follow me at Rob K Henderson. Um, yeah, I'll have the website up. I'm working on a memoir. Um, so oh. yeah, later on, uh, yeah, just uh, hopefully, hopefully, I'll be able to promote that soon and uh, maybe join you guys again. That sounds great. Well, th that was our conversation with. Rob Henderson, my, my friend Jensen and I hosted the show. We hope you enjoyed the, the, the full conversation. It's almost two hours long. You can watch the full conversation on our YouTube channel or on policypunchline.com. Follow us on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, definitely follow Rob on Rob K. Henderson, at Rob K. Henderson on Twitter. And you may subscribe to his newsletters, uh, which is a fascinating short read every uh, once in a while and, and keeps you informed about human nature, about uh, all kinds of ideas. Uh, so thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.